If you brought a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 4. That's where we're going to spend most of our time today. If you didn't bring a Bible, these verses will be up on the screens. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one. It's our free gift to you. Uh, Stop by the blue tent out in the lobby and let them know that uh, you'd like a Bible and we will hook you up. But uh, John chapter 4 is where we're going to be as we continue in our series, Knowing Jesus. We've been studying the life and the ministry of Jesus so that we can know him better and in turn that we can pattern our lives after him. And so if you were with us last weekend, you know we were in John chapter 3 and we saw a story that included an account of Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, and we read those famous words, Christ must increase, I must decrease, he must become greater, I must become less. And uh, that's exactly where we're going to pick the story up today in John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Here's what we read. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it wasn't Jesus who was baptizing, but it was his disciples And so he left Judea, and he went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. Let's pause right there and just get our bearings. If we could take a look at the map real quick. You might remember Judea is in the south, Galilee is in the north, and Samaria is right between the two. And obviously we all know that the quickest distance between any two points is what? Straight line, straight on through Samaria, right? But uh, these words uh, in John's gospel, they, uh, there's something at play here that the map doesn't necessarily tell us, and it's this. For a first century Jew, the thought of traveling that straight line through Samaria was nothing short of appalling. In fact, the, uh, the Jews would add about 50 miles to this journey from Judea to Galilee or back uh, by skirting Samaria to the east they would do anything necessary to not have to travel through Samaria for the simple reason that the Jews hated the Samaritans. And the Samaritans likewise hated the Jews. In fact, we're going to see later in the text that the Jews and Samaritans had no dealings with one another, none at all. And to understand the root of this tension, uh, we have to go all the way back to 722 B.C. That's when the Assyrian armies attacked northern Israel. And uh, they conquered that territory. They deported all of the men out of Israel. They imported their own men who then married the Jewish women and, uh, and brought with them all of their idolatries, all of their cultural differences and influences. And with that, the Samaritan people who we read about in John chapter 4 They were the descendants of these Assyrian Jewish unions, and they were a constant reminder of a very dark time in Israel's history. The Jews viewed the Samaritans as half-breeds and idolaters, and the racial tension between these two people groups cannot be understated. It was intense. And so it's interesting that John says that Jesus had to travel through Samaria. Why would he say that? We've already seen that Not only is is that not true, he could go through Samaria, but that wasn't even the desirable route. The, The route around Samaria was the desirable route. Why would he say that he had to go through Samaria? Well, it wasn't because there wasn't a different path, but rather because of Jesus's obedience to his father. See, the verb that John uses in this text communicates an obedient response. Jesus isn't acting on his own will here. He's not looking to teach his disciples a shortcut. 
Jesus had to travel through Samaria because his priority was always obedience, always. And the father wanted Jesus to show that the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone, and exclusivity will not be tolerated in God's kingdom. It won't be tolerated in his family. It won't be tolerated in his church. And God forgive us if there is any race or class or group of people who we have deemed as unworthy to receive God's unmerited grace because the gospel is for everyone. Now, I want you to see what happens as Jesus enters Samaria. In verse 5, it says, He came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. Now, this is a significant location. The text tells us that Jacob's well was there, and it's pointing back once again to the Old Testament, the time of Jacob and Joseph. This is around 2000 B.C., and uh, this is actually pretty cool. The well that this text is likely referencing is still in existence today. We've got a picture of it. This is Jacob's well, and, uh, and they found it inside of a convent about 3,500 years later. And once they cleaned all of the debris and the rubble out of it, they found that the original well was likely about 100 feet deep. Now, that is a significant depth and those of you who have ever tried to dig a post hole by hand know that to be true, right? I hit about two and a half feet and I'm about done. They had no power tools, no steel augers, none of this, and yet they achieved a depth of 100 feet deep, even all those thousands of years ago. Well, that depth is significant to John's account because Jesus has just walked a far distance and he's walked it in a dry, almost desert-like climate. He's tired, he's thirsty, he's hot, he wants a drink. And he comes to this well, but the water's 100 feet down, and he has nothing to draw with. And in this, we see a picture of Christ's full humanity. Because he doesn't just play the God card and just make a glass of water appear, right? He doesn't, doesn't make a, a bucket and a rope appear so that he can draw that water. Instead, he sits down and look at what he does next. Verse 7, it says, When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Now, his disciples had gone into the town to buy food, but the Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Notice that she immediately identifies the, the tension here. She immediately recognizes this, this isn't normal. This isn't how this is supposed to happen. She says, how can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And this woman knew that, that Jesus, or not Jesus, that the Jews would never consider drinking from a vessel that a Samaritan had, had taken a drink from. That would be disgusting to them. I'm not going to put my lips on something that a dirty Samaritan's lips have been on. That's how the Jews would have viewed this. But apparently Jesus doesn't know the rules and he doesn't care about the rules. He's come to this place and he's asking this woman for a drink. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. So I wonder if the woman is starting to think, okay, this is, this is making sense. This guy's out of his mind. He's saying he's going to give me water, but he has no rope. He has no bucket. He can't give me anything. He's nuts, right? 
She says, where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? So here's what's going on. The woman sees clearly the physical reality, right? No rope, no bucket, water's 100 feet down there. Jesus couldn't possibly give her anything. But Jesus is talking about a spiritual reality, living water, true satisfaction. And so he answers her in verse 13. And he says, everyone who drinks this water, meaning the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And now the woman is interested and she says, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So again, she misses what Jesus is trying to tell her and instead she gets excited about the prospect of of not having to draw water. And, And that would have been a huge advantage, right? We all have multiple faucets in our house if we want water. We just turn it on, get the water we want and shut it off. That's not, that's not true for this woman. I mean, she's got a long journey to make to the well hauling along a a bucket and a hundred feet of rope. And when she gets to the well, she's got to drop it all the way down there and haul that bucket up at eight pounds per gallon until she gets enough water for her household. And then she's got to carry it all back home where it will be used up quickly and she'll have to do this again and again. So you can see why the thought of never having to come to this well again sounds pretty great. And so she says, give it to me. I want that. I, I, want, I want this. But again, she's thinking only about her physical life. And Jesus is talking about her spiritual life. So in verse 16, he goes straight for her heart. And it says, he told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Okay, so now it's starting to make sense. You see, it's weird that that this woman would be coming to the well all alone right in the middle of the day. Something like like drawing water at the well was a, a community event. It was something that all of the women would have looked forward to doing together. They would have traveled in the cool of the morning and, and along the route and during the work, they would have been talking about what's new with you? How are the kids? How's your husband? What's going on at your house? Did you hear so-and-so got a new donkey and it's got leather seats, right? This is the kind of thing that happened while you went to the well. It wasn't something you did alone. Unless, of course, you were an outcast. Like if you've had five husbands and the guy you're with now isn't your husband, well, then you'd have to come to the well alone because you're a sinner. You know, you're an outcast among the outcasts. And while we don't know all of the details of this woman's story, we know enough to see that she is clearly trying to fill some kind of emptiness in her heart. And she has moved from man to man to man, trying to fill that emptiness, trying to satisfy that longing inside of her heart. And before we judge her too quickly for this, I think we should stop and recognize that we all do this exact same thing all the time. And it may or may not be relationships. Maybe it's something like a bigger house or a better job or more money or more stuff or or whatever it might be, but it's all an effort to find some kind of satisfaction that just always seems to elude us. I want you to hear me on this this morning. If you find yourself thirsty, 
you are likely drinking from the wrong well. And Jesus wants us to see that he is the only one who satisfies. Jesus is the only one who satisfies. Augustine said it this way in his confessions. He wrote, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in thee. See, he knew that all the other things that we pursue, all of these other things that, that promise and promote satisfaction, whether it's relationships or money or stuff or whatever it is, they are all counterfeits claiming to do what only God can do in our hearts. Jesus is the only one who satisfies. He's the only one who can. And that's what he wants you and I and this woman to see. Now watch how she responds in verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And I think this is so funny because Jesus is highlighting, you know, her dating life. And she's like, okay, enough about me. Let's talk about worship, right? Just anything but my dating life. And uh, Jesus goes with it. And in verse 21, Jesus replied, woman, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth." Now, this is one of the major tensions between the Jews and the Samaritans, and Jesus knows this, this constant debate about where we're supposed to go to worship. The, uh, the Samaritans believed that, that worship had to happen on Mount Gerizim. The Jews believed that, that worship had to happen at the temple in Jerusalem, and, and this was a heated argument, a heated debate. But Jesus says it's no longer going to be about the location. Forget about the location. True worshipers will be marked not by where they worship, but by the fact that they worship in spirit and in truth. Now, what does that mean? Well, Paul gives us a clue to that in Romans chapter 12, where he says that we are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Or some of you have a translation that maybe says this is your spiritual act of worship that we would offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. True worship is offering our whole life to God. And Jesus is saying to this woman, you know, you're, you're so focused on the exterior, but I'm looking inside. You're focused on a location. I'm looking at your heart. You're focused on the rules. I'm talking about a relationship, but she doesn't want to hear that. And so in verse 25, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us, right? She just wants to wrap the conversation up. I don't, this guy might be crazy. Maybe he's not. I don't know. I'm just done. And so Jesus decides it's time to put all his cards on the table in verse 26. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Talk about a mic drop moment right? The woman says the Messiah is going to explain it to us. And Jesus is like, I just did, right? 
and she sees Jesus for the first time for who he really is. And we're going to see that her life was forever changed as her eyes were opened to see the reality of Christ. But before we get to that, remember that the disciples, they've gone off to get something to eat. Look at verse 27. It says, then his disciples returned and they were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Again, it's just highlighting that tension, right? Everybody recognized it. Nobody mentions it. We see that Jesus had to go to Samaria in obedience to his father to teach the world a lesson, to reach this Samaritan woman, but also because he had something to teach his disciples. Verse 28 says, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and they made their way toward him. Now, what you will find as you read on is is that because of this woman's testimony, many Samaritans came and believed in Jesus. She's had this brief encounter with Christ. Her eyes were open to the reality of who he was. And she just goes and tells everybody that will listen. And many Samaritans believed because of her testimony. But remember, Jesus came to this well tired and thirsty. He came here with some very real physical needs, didn't he? But I want you to notice what he did. He, he used those very real physical needs in his own life to begin a spiritual conversation with this woman. And somewhere in the middle of it all, it became less about his needs and it became all about her spiritual need. What Jesus models here for us is this. God can reach others through our needs. God can reach others through our needs. I think sometimes as, as Christians, we... Uh, think, and, and rightly, this isn't a wrong way to think, but that we need to meet someone's physical need so that then they would be open to maybe hearing about their spiritual need. That certainly is something that we see Christ doing throughout the Gospels. But here he demonstrates something different, and it's that he uses one of his own physical needs to start a spiritual conversation with this woman. And I think that that's important for us to see and to know because we live in America and darn it, we are self-sufficient, aren't we? If there's a problem, we'll get it done. If, if, we don't, if we need a rope and a bucket, then we'll go to Lowe's and we'll get a rope and a bucket and we're going to conquer that mountain, right? But what if we started looking at our needs not as mountains to be climbed or problems that we can fix, but rather what if we started looking at them as opportunities that God could use to reach someone else with the hope that we have? It's, it's simple stuff, you guys. It's simple stuff. Like maybe you're working on a project and, and you need a certain size drill bit. And uh, you know that your neighbor's got tools and you could run up to the hardware store and just get it. And quite honestly, that might be faster. But instead of doing that, you make an intentional decision and you pray a prayer and you say, God, I'm going to reach out to my neighbor and uh, see if I can just borrow his drill bit. And is that something that you could use just to, to maybe open up a conversation and I could hear what's going on in his life and, and maybe share a little bit about what you've done in mine? Or maybe you find yourself out of eggs. We are always running out of eggs. Is that just us or is that everybody? There's never an egg when you need an egg, right? But what if instead of just running to the store and getting the eggs, like you just go knock on your neighbor's door. But before you do it, you pray and you say, God, would you use something as simple as my need for an egg or flour or whatever it might be, that it could be a contact point and it could start a conversation. It might be the only time your neighbor talks to somebody 
that day. I don't know about your neighborhood. I see a lot of cars pulling in, doors going up, car goes in, door goes down. You never even see the people get out of their car. Man, we got we to gotta be intentional about this. We got to be intentional about engaging our neighbors in conversation. And it can start with something as simple as allowing them to meet our needs. I think that's what Jesus wants us to see here. One more thing, and then we're going to wrap this up. But in verse 31, here's what we read. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. Remember, they've, they've come back. Jesus is hungry and tired. They know it, and, uh, and they're ready to, to fill his needs, right? Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And his disciples are looking at each other, and they start saying to one another, could someone have brought him food? Where did he get this food? Verse 34, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Okay, don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you to open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another one reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Now, what is Jesus talking about here with all of this sowing and reaping and, and uh, reaping the benefits of someone else's work? Well, a lot of scholars believe that what Jesus is referring to is the work of his cousin, John the Baptist that John the Baptist was likely the one who was sowing the seed. And we know from the prophecies that were told about John that that's exactly the role that he was going to fulfill. He was going to make a way. He was going to prepare a way for the one who was the coming Messiah. And could it be that John's message and John's disciples had reached all the way into Samaria? That we know from verse 25 that, uh, that this woman knew that the Messiah was coming. How'd she know? Well, somebody told her. I mean, she had heard this from someone, possibly because of John and his disciples, the sowers, preaching and teaching and preparing the way. But regardless of how they knew, the point is they knew. They were watching for it. They knew about the Messiah. They were waiting for him. And Jesus says to his disciples in verse 35, open up your eyes. Open up your eyes because even his own disciples were so focused on the physical. Why is he talking to her? She's a Samaritan. Jesus must be hungry. Jesus, you look hungry. Jesus, you should eat something. And Jesus is like, listen, open your eyes. Forget about my hunger. Forget about physical food. There's something going on around you that you are completely missing. There are people all around who are in desperate need of a Savior, and they are waiting for you to share the hope that you have. Genesis, I'm afraid that some of us are beginning to lose our focus. I say that because this, this pandemic and all of these things that are going on in our world that are out of our control and it just looks like chaos and, and just constant uh, battle going on in our world right now. These are things that can leave us distracted for sure, uh, tired. I've felt that. Some of us even feel a little bit afraid, but we can't lose our focus as a church and as followers of Jesus, we have to live with eyes wide open. There are fields all around us that are ripe for harvest and our mission of helping people find their way back to God has not changed. But we're gonna have to open up our eyes to see them. So I'm going to ask you to do something that is a little bit ironic right now. I'm gonna ask you to close your eyes, <laughs> your physical eyes, 
because I want you to think about something right now. Would you do this with me? Would you just bow your head and close your eyes? Because I want to give you a minute to examine your heart and to ask the Lord this question. Are my eyes open to see what you want me to see? Or has the trouble of this world taken center stage in my life? Ask the Father that right now. Are my eyes open to see what you want me to see? Father God, would you open our eyes today? And let it begin with this, Father. Would you open our eyes to see and embrace the truth that the gospel is for everyone? And so, Father, if there is any race or group or class of people who we have excluded or thought less of or just figured they're a lost cause, Father, forgive us for that. I pray that you would root that out of us and help us to see people and to love people the way you do. Open our eyes, Father, to the people around us who need you. And may we see even our needs as opportunities to begin spiritual conversations with the people in our lives. Would you give us an opportunity like that even today? And open our eyes, Lord, to the fact that not every well we can drink from will bring us satisfaction. In fact, only one will. So when we are tired and when we are afraid and when we are distracted, draw us back to you, Lord. Draw us back to the the well of living water. Open our eyes to the truth that you are our source and you are our strength. Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray today. Amen.